Amen. Turn your Bible with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, if you have your Bible. Today we're going to look at a story about a man some of us were introduced to in childhood. That man is Zacchaeus, or you may pronounce it Zacchaeus. Uh, I believe the technical pronunciation is Zacchaeus, but I grew up saying Zacchaeus, so instead of trying to switch it and mess it up throughout the sermon. I'm just going to get it out of the way now. I'm just going to say Zacchaeus. But just the name Zacchaeus might bring a smile to your face, right? If you grew up in Sunday school, you probably learned a little song about him, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, you know, that whole song. Wee little man. Um, I drew pictures of him in Sunday school. I remember the little cutout flannel boards of Zacchaeus, the little character. Um, And maybe more than anything else, we remember that Zacchaeus was what? He was a wee little man. We little man, and he climbed up in a tree in order to see Jesus. Some of you that are vertically challenged understand this. And while the song and Sunday school teachings about Zacchaeus help children remember a story in the Bible, which is good, the song really, in a way, it kind of misses the point of the story because there's so much spiritual content happening uh, in this encounter between Zacchaeus and Jesus. And it's not just about Zacchaeus being a wee little man and climbing a tree. And uh, while we may tend to think of this as one of the kid stories of the Bible, right, like a kid movie, it's animated and it's silly and it's kind of goofy and we laugh, um, it's actually a very powerful and even controversial story about Jesus. And there's a lot that we can learn in it. I think there's some important truth for us today that's found within the story and uh, some of the other verses that we'll look at. The title of the message this morning is Make Jesus Lord. Make Jesus Lord. Um, And the idea behind the title is that these scriptures that we'll read and what we'll find out uh, about what what the Bible teaches us is that when we make Jesus the Lord of our lives, our lives are transformed to reflect the love of Jesus and the values of his kingdom. And let me read that again. When we make Jesus the Lord of our lives, our lives are transformed to reflect the love of Jesus and the values of his kingdom. But don't think that this is just limited to some sort of salvation message because even those of us who have been Christians for many years still need help and encouragement in making Jesus the Lord of our lives so that our hearts and our minds and our speech and our actions are properly aligned with the love of Jesus and the values of his kingdom, right? I need help every day, and I'm sure you do too. So let's get started. Let's unpack this idea, and let's find out about uh, Zacchaeus and who he was. Verse number 1, Luke chapter 19, verse number 1 says this, He entered Jericho and was passing through. The he in verse number one is referring to Jesus. In Luke 17, we're informed that Jesus is traveling. This is just a couple chapters earlier. Jesus is traveling. Jerusalem is his destination. But while Jesus is on the journey, he takes time to stop in different cities along the way, uh, which we have record of in chapter 17 through 19. One of the cities that Jesus had to travel through in order to get to Jerusalem was Jericho. Jericho is an interesting city. If you're a student of the Bible, you'll remember that Jericho was one of the first cities, uh, or it was the first city that God gave to the Israelites when they entered uh, the Promised Land. It sits just a little bit northeast of Jerusalem, and it's surrounded by mountains on the east and the west and the Dead Sea to the south. So I want you to kind of picture what this is like, surrounded by um, deserts, deserts to the north, deserty mountains on the sides, um, the Dead Sea where there's no life to the south. The nearby Jordan River fed an underground river that created an oasis in Jericho. The city was known as the City of Palm Trees. And there were many palm trees that were fed by this oasis as well as as other types of vegetation. 
And because of this vegetation, the city was a huge center for the production and export of balsam, which boosted the economy, making Jericho a wealthy city, okay? And if you couldn't tell already, because of all the palms, it was a beautiful city. All the greenery and everything was surrounded by desert, so it was, a, it was a nice little spot in the middle of nothing. And the city was so beautiful that the priests who served in the temple had a sort of retreat in Jericho where they would go and they would spend their off time. So get this you know, kind of picture in your mind. It's a beautiful place. There's plenty of trees and vegetations around. It's almost like a vacation city found in the middle of the desert. And the Excuse me, and they had a large export business which made many of the residents very wealthy. This is Jericho. We get to verse 2, which says, And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. So we have a picture of some of the wealth of the city, and we can get a picture of just how rich Zacchaeus was because he's already living in a city that is full of rich people full of many people that are rich, and now we have this statement that says, he was rich too. So you can imagine about the wealth that he had. This verse says that he was a tax collector, which probably means that he had the chief tax collector, which means he had employees who were working for him, collecting taxes from the people. During this time, the tax collectors were considered to be some of the most evil people around. They worked for the Roman Empire, collecting taxes and sending them to Rome. But the tax collectors were notorious for charging people way beyond what the tax actually was. In fact, I read a story, um, an example in in doing some research on this, that uh, they would try to find as many crazy things to tax as they possibly could. Why? Because it made them more money. And so the, the example that I read was that if somebody bought a cart or owned a cart, right, picture like a cart that gets pulled by animals, Um, They could not only be taxed for the cart, but for each wheel that was on the cart. So if it was a two-wheel cart, they'd be charged for the cart and the two wheels. If it was four wheels, uh, they'd be charged for the cart and four wheels. Um, I mean, that's what the tax collectors were like. They tried to find everything that they could to, to get money out of these people. And they were also hard people, not forgiving and not gracious to anybody um, if they couldn't pay. And as a result of their behavior, people hated them, right? No surprise. People hated them. Uh, And because they were hated by the majority of the people, the tax collectors probably lived somewhat lonely lives, with the exception being their other tax collector friends, because nobody else in town liked them. Uh, So we have Zacchaeus, a, a very wealthy man living in a very beautiful and wealthy city, but he is despised by most of the people in town. And as a result, it's likely he doesn't have very many friends or close relationships, again, except for his tax collector friends. And so he hears that Jesus is coming through town. And he thinks back to other stories that he's heard about Jesus. Jesus is the man who travels around and crowds follow him. Jesus is the man who heals. Jesus is the man who does miracles. Jesus is the man who isn't too good to associate with the poor people or the sinful people or the unclean people. Jesus is welcoming and accepting to everybody. And Zacchaeus decides that he has to go see Jesus. He has to see this man he's heard about. But there's a problem. There's a problem. Verse 3 records this for us. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Again, this might bring back some pictures of Zacchaeus from Sunday school. Wee little Zacchaeus. Wee little man was he. Uh, He hears that Jesus is coming through town, and he wants to see Jesus so bad, but everybody is in the way, and he can't get to Jesus. And do you remember the size of some of the crowds that followed Jesus around? 
They were huge, huge crowds of people that followed Jesus around. We have accounts in the Gospels that talk about thousands of people following Jesus on his journeys. That's a lot of people. And I think of the, the account of the woman who needed healing, and she's fighting her way through the crowd, and she reaches out and touches Jesus. And you can just kind of picture the crowd. You know how when you get in a crowd, you're just kind of, like, crunched together, everybody? And you just kind of picture the crowd like that, and this woman's trying to reach out and touch him, and Jesus says, who touched me? And can you picture the disciples like huddled together like this and probably the the immense noise of the crowd, the disciples look at him like he's crazy. What do you mean who touched you? Look at all these people around here. What do you mean who touched you? These are what the crowds were like that followed Jesus around. And these crowds present a problem for we little Zacchaeus. They're not exactly a welcoming environment if you're vertically challenged or if you are a hated person among the townspeople. Can you just imagine that if everybody in town hates you, you're trying to get through this crowd and somebody just elbow. You know what I mean? It's not a welcoming environment. I think at some point we can all kind of relate to this idea of not being able to see, right? Even I can, and I'm over six feet tall. But I can even relate to this. Maybe maybe you experienced it when you were younger. Maybe you deal with it now. But I think we all know what it's like to have to look through somebody's head, whether it's at the movies or a concert or even at church. Um, when I look around now, there are some of your faces that I can't see because they're behind <laughs> other people. Um, and so, you know, we all kind of relate to this. Um, but again, Jericho is the, this amazing oasis full, full of vegetation, and Zacchaeus finds a tree to climb up into. Verse 4 says, So he ran on ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. So he has no luck getting through the crowd to see Jesus. He runs ahead, he climbs up a tree. Um, so that he can see Jesus as he passes by. And here's what verse 5 says. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. So Zacchaeus climbs up in the tree to see Jesus, and uh, he sees Jesus, Jesus sees him, and Jesus looks up at him and making eye contact with him, says, Zacchaeus, come down from this tree. I want to go to your house and I want to have dinner. That's essentially what Jesus is saying. Jesus wasn't commanding Zacchaeus to come down um, like Jesus would would be like a corrupt person in in a position of power. Come down so I can stay at your house because I need a place to stay. That's not what it was about. Jesus wasn't commanding Zacchaeus to come down and open up his probably very nice house because he was a wealthy man so that Jesus could have a place to stay for the night. It was an invitation for connection and relationship with Jesus. Jesus would have gone to Zacchaeus' house and shared a meal, relaxed with him and the others who would have been present, such as the disciples, um, some of Zacchaeus' family, maybe some of his tax collector friends. And for somebody like Zacchaeus, who was hated by most people, this was an amazing invitation that he simply couldn't refuse. Jesus wanted to spend time with him. Zacchaeus wanted to get to know Jesus, and uh, he wanted to get to know the Savior. So he hurried down from the tree, and they went to Zacchaeus' house. I mean, it sounds great, right? So far, so good with this story. But then enter in verse 7, and the religious people. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And when they saw it, who is they? Who is the they? That would be the members of the crowd, possibly Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders. Chapter 17 and 19 really all flow together as one continuous story, the journey of Jesus traveling to Jerusalem. The Pharisees were mentioned specifically by name as recent as chapter 17, verse number 20. 
So it wasn't that long ago they were mentioned specifically. In chapter 18, there's people who uh, are not named specifically, but the scripture records that they were self-righteous and they thought they were better than everybody else. So there's some not awesome people in this crowd following Jesus. And these are the people who are saying, there he goes again. He's always associating with all these sinners, tax collectors, adulterers, unclean people. And now he's not just talking with them out in public in the street, but he's actually going into this guy's house. Ugh, Jesus. It's funny that Jesus had a reputation for hanging sinners and the Pharisees and other religious people. Um, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus had a reputation for hanging out with sinners and the Pharisees and other religious people had a reputation for being judgmental. And now the church has a reputation for being judgmental. But that's a sermon for another day, I suppose. Um, religious people are complaining to Jesus. Um, they're complaining about him. Jesus goes in, he spends time with Zacchaeus, and I so wish that we had recordings of the conversation that takes place inside of Zacchaeus's house. We don't, but we do have the following statements from Zacchaeus and Jesus. Verse number 8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Zacchaeus welcomes Jesus into his home, and again, we don't have a recording of what exactly happened as far as conversations go, but we do have evidence here in verse 8 that Zacchaeus' life had been remarkably changed. Remember that Zacchaeus was a wealthy man. Not wealthy because of good hard work, but wealthy because he was a corrupt tax collector. But now this corrupt tax collector is promising to, give, to, to right all of his wrongs. He's going to give away half of his wealth to the poor. And he's going to repay everyone that he defrauded. No, not just, not just repay them. Repay them four times what he took from them. I mean, is this, is this amazing evidence of a changed life? Or what? This man meets Jesus, and, and his actions are evidence that he has experienced an amazing transformation in his life. Zacchaeus experienced Jesus' transforming power. Um, and, you know, the same thing goes for us today, that Jesus wants to transform our lives. He wants to not only forgive us of our sins, but he wants to transform our lives. He wants to transform our actions. And here's what Jesus says about Zacchaeus in verse 9. Uh, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And so we have this pronouncement that salvation had come to Zacchaeus' house. And a great reminder of why Jesus was on earth in the first place, to seek and to save the lost. That was Jesus' mission on earth. But I find the placement of Jesus' statement about salvation very interesting when considered within the context of this entire story of Zacchaeus. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, salvation has come to you uh, when, when this lost and somewhat lonely tax collector climbs up the tree. Jesus doesn't say, I see you up there, I see the great length that you went to to see me, and now you have salvation. Jesus doesn't say that to him. Jesus doesn't say, salvation has come to you when Zacchaeus opens up his house and hosts Jesus for dinner, which was a very open and welcoming thing on Zacchaeus' part, right? I'm opening up my life to you. 
But Jesus doesn't say salvation has come at that point. And again, I assume that there were many conversations that took place over the course of a meal and the time that Jesus spent there. Conversations about God, about Jesus, the Son of Man, salvation, teachings about the kingdom of God. We don't have any recordings of those, but what we do have a recording of is Zacchaeus demonstrating that he has not only accepted Jesus as his Savior, the one who could forgive him of his sins, but he has accepted Jesus as his Lord. That is, Zacchaeus has decided that he wants to allow God to transform his life and his actions to be reflective of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for him. This is an essential part of salvation, and I think that there, there is a difference, and I don't think I'm just you know uh, talking semantics here when I say there's a difference between Jesus being Savior and Jesus being Lord, and I think Jesus needs to be both our Savior and our Lord. Salvation is believing that Jesus is God's son who died for your sins and was raised from the dead. Salvation is asking for forgiveness of your sins. But salvation is also repenting of those sins, which means you're turning the direction of your life over to God and you're willingly submitting yourself to Jesus' lordship or kingship in your life, which means that you are allowing your life to be transformed to reflect the love of Jesus and the values of his kingdom. This is an important and essential element of salvation. That Jesus is our Savior, the one who forgives us of our sins, but Jesus is also our Lord, the one that we live in submission to and the one who transforms our life. The story of Zacchaeus is often contrasted with the story of the rich young ruler, which is found just one chapter earlier in Luke chapter 18. Let me read a few verses from that. Luke 18 Uh, starting in verse number 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? For no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. See, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, that's the rich young ruler. When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. You know, we're looking at stories that talk about money, and I promise I'm really not trying to talk about money today. I'll let the senior pastor handle talking about money with the church. When we look at these passages, though, and we study them, uh, and we look to apply them to our lives, I think it's clear that that these lessons are more than just about money. They're more than just about wealth. They're lessons to us about how we are to live our lives. And the idea of submitting to Jesus as Lord is the idea that you are agreeing to let him be the master of your life. You're agreeing to submit to him in every area, to offer your heart completely to him. And sometimes we're so quick to call Jesus our Lord and Savior, right? We sing songs about it. We read Bible verses about it. Perhaps we're even, we're even able to quote those Bible verses. Uh, we're pretty good about church attendance, right? 
couple times a month, we can check it off. We've been there. But aside from those things, we've not really experienced a real change in our life after we've met Jesus. We're not really letting Jesus invade our hearts and transform us to reflect his love and his values. The rich young ruler wanted eternal life. And by all appearances, he was a good man. Everybody would have said he was a good man. He kept all the laws. He didn't lie. He was faithful to his spouse. He honored his parents. He certainly behaved much different than this tax collector named Zacchaeus. But the rich young ruler was attached to his money. He wanted eternal life, but he also wanted to control the way he lived. He wanted to control his own life. He wanted to control his own actions. He was living for himself. And when confronted with the life-changing reality of who Jesus is and the values of the kingdom of God, this man chose to hold on to his old life instead of allowing Jesus to transform him. Zacchaeus, on the other hand, willingly submitted himself to Jesus' lordship in his life. That is, he submitted himself to be transformed to reflect the love of Jesus and the values of the kingdom. This is important for us to study and consider today as we in the American church have had a tremendous downplay in recent years on the need to submit to Jesus as Lord and on the need to submit our lives to be transformed to reflect Jesus and his love and his values. We've had a huge push on saying yes to Jesus and yes to his love, which is great, but at the same time we've put less of an emphasis on repentance, which means to turn away from your sin and turn towards Jesus. This is important for us because over and over again, Scripture talks about the need for us to submit to God and to let him transform our lives. That's the idea of Jesus being our Savior and our Lord. He's our Savior because he forgives us of our sins and literally saves us from eternal punishment in hell. But he also needs to be our Lord, the one that we dedicate our lives to and and the one that we allow into our life to to transform us to reflect his love and his values. And it's not just in some of the teachings that go around in the church world. We see this reality in our own lives. I see it in mine. You see it in yours. Paul said it best maybe in Romans 7. He said, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Remember, this is Paul. This is the apostle Paul, the man who planted churches Uh, the man who had this amazing encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, radically saved, planting churches, taking missionary journeys, spreading the gospel, and yet he says, I know that I don't have anything good in me, in my flesh. He says, I have the, the, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. He's saying that, He struggles with this every day. That he wants to do good things, but he finds himself continually doing the wrong things. He wants to live out this new life in Christ, but he finds himself continually falling back into his old pattern. I identify with that, and I'm sure that you do too. It's a constant struggle um, for us. And it's hard for us sometimes. It's hard for us sometimes to fully open up ourselves to Jesus. Maybe we're afraid of what he's going to do. Maybe we're comfortable with life where it is. Maybe we just think we don't need any more about Jesus or any more Jesus in our life. But here's the thing about opening up your heart to Jesus in this way. Salvation is a one-time act, right? We don't need to come to Jesus every day and say, Lord, save me again. 
It's a one-time thing, so long as we don't reject it. But the opening up your heart and exposing all you are to Jesus is a daily thing. That's why we sing songs like, Jesus, I surrender, I draw nearer, I fall down. Master, be my Savior, be my shelter, be my God, right? Or even the old hymns, I surrender all. I surrender all, all to thee, my Blessed Savior, I surrender all. It's a daily need for us. It's why we read Bible verses like this. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. And Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, we have that idea of transformation, of being renewed. In James 4, chapter, se- or, uh, chapter 4, verse 7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and we- he will flee from you. So this idea of submission. It's not always easy, but it's necessary. And Scripture instructs us, to submit ourselves to Jesus, not just as the one who forgives us of our sins, but as the Lord who transforms our hearts and our minds and our lives to be reflective of his love and his values. And this is a regular occurrence because we're still fallen beings. We still live in a sinful world. We are prone to sin. It's like the old hymn says, we're prone to wander. We must take time to open our hearts Allow the Holy Spirit to examine us and allow the life-changing power of God to transform us. For Zacchaeus, it would have probably been easier to keep on going with life as it was um, than to allow Jesus into his house and commune with the Savior and allow the Son of God to delve into the core of his being. It's easier for us sometimes to keep going through life just like we have been, like we're used to than it is for us to open up our hearts and be exposed to Jesus, to allow him into our inner being where our true self resides. But that's what Jesus wants. He wants us to give him our full hearts. He wants us to submit to him and let him be the Lord of our lives. He wants to change us and give us new life. And you may be thinking, man, but my life's pretty good. My life's pretty good. I don't want it to change. I'd say that if you think your life is good now, wait until you really let Jesus into your heart. The truly good things that are in your life won't disappear. They'll be enhanced. And all the other parts of your life will be more satisfying and more fulfilling and more purposeful because you're serving Jesus Christ with all that you are. And it's important for us to do this. It's important for us to study this and remember this as the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and lives because if we don't, we're that much more likely just to think, well, hey, I've just been living like this for so long and you know, God still loves me, so I'm just gonna be good and keep going. But that's not what God wants. He wants our entire life. He wants our whole hearts, our whole focus and attention because he wants to do great things in our life. Take a quick overview of what happened in Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector. His money was his love. He exhorted and mis- extorted and mistreated people. Wrongfully charged more tax than was required. He probably had little grace or forgiveness on people. And he was setting this example for all of his employees and staff and other people who helped him collect taxes. 
He set an evil, although normal, example that said, this is how we tax collectors do it. This is how we operate. But once he met Jesus, his life was changed. He gave back the money fourfold. He gave away half of his stuff, which probably left him still with a lot of stuff, but he gave half of it away. Following Jesus probably cost him his job because, I mean, how can you keep working in a profession that's that evil once you know Jesus? But, you know, that didn't matter for Zacchaeus. He got involved in ministry in the church. Church tradition holds that he was involved in ministry. There's some debate about where exactly Zacchaeus went, what city he was in, what church he was in. But church tradition holds that he was involved in ministry, possibly even as a pastor. And his new work in the ministry set the example of what a transformed life looks like. Yeah, he was a bad guy that messed up, but he did what he could to make up for those mistakes, and he allowed Jesus to change him from the inside out. And now the trajectory of his life and work were completely different. Interestingly enough, Zacchaeus' name means the pure one or the righteous. And certainly after meeting Jesus, he understood his name in a whole new way. And people knew that Zacchaeus was a Christian, not just because he said it, but because he lived it. Not just because he gathered weekly with other Christians, but because he lived a life full of Jesus' love every single day. How do other people know that you're a Christian? Because you tell them? Actually, that's pretty good if you tell them. (laughs) Sometimes we're so timid about telling people. But do they also know it by your actions? Do people see the love of Jesus and his values reflected in your life? Do they see him in the way that you talk? Are you loving in your speech and in your actions? Are you respectful of others? Are you honest in your business? Is your integrity rock solid or do you compromise? There's a list of other questions we could ask. Do you self-medicate? Are you, are you sexually pure? Are you prone to fits of anger and rage? Do you consider yourself better than others or do you put others better than yourselves? Challenging questions. These are the kingdom values. Challenging questions for us. Zacchaeus has an incredible encounter with Jesus that transformed his life. And I'm here to say today that God wants to transform your life as well. That's what he wants to do with each one of us but he won't force it on anyone. And it won't happen automatically. It has to be a conscious decision that we make to allow Jesus to be not just our Savior, the one who forgives us of our sins, but our Lord, the one who transforms our life to be reflective of his love and his values. That's what this story is about. That's what so much of the Bible is about, submitting to Jesus as Lord and allowing him to transform our lives. He wants to do that for all of us today. And we all need it. Oh, we all need it. As we work toward closing this message today, I want to tell you what we're going to do. In a few moments, we're going to take communion. So uh, um, I meant to talk to the brothers before service, and I didn't get around to it. But uh, guys, we're going to take communion in a couple minutes. So, (laughs) With communion, there's going to be a time for prayer and reflection. And examination. And I want to challenge each one of you this morning to take into consideration the things that were said. The things that scripture teaches about surrendering ourselves to Jesus. Uh, 
hopefully we can see that it's not an optional thing. And it's not just a good suggestion. It really is a requirement for being a Christian that we allow God to examine our hearts and to change and mold our lives. And here's the final encouragement for you before we get to prayer. Um, I've struggled many times in my life with the idea of wanting to change but not having the ability to change. It's exactly what Paul said in the passage we read from Romans. I want to do these things, but I don't have the ability to do them. Paul speaks later in that passage about how the power comes from God. Jesus says something similar in the story of the rich young ruler. The disciples and other people around him said, Lord, who can be saved? And what did Jesus say? He said, with man it's impossible, but with God anything's impossible. anything is possible. We don't have to have the power to bring about change on our own. We're weak and we're sinful, but God has the power to help us overcome we need to trust him and rely on him for strength and transformation. And that's good news for me. I'm, I'm sure it is for you as well. I don't have to be strong enough. I don't have to be good enough. I don't have to be capable enough. I just have to be willing to submit my life to God and let his power work in me and let his power change me. So again, as we approach this time of prayer, reflection, and communion, I want to encourage you with these things. Examine your heart. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you and allow him to change your heart and your life today. Would you bow your heads with me as we prepare to pray? Brothers that are on the worship team or or whoever's on the worship team that's coming up, um, you can go ahead and and come up and start playing. Um, The guys who are going to serve communion, you can... um, make whatever preparations you need to to get ready and come up here for that. Um, As you're in an atmosphere of prayer this morning, and as I get ready to pray, um, your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed, you you are praying in your heart and your mind this morning. I just want to encourage anyone here today who does not know Jesus as the Savior, that you can know him today. I can't draw you into this like the Holy Spirit can draw you into it, and I trust that he's already been speaking to you. You may feel things right now that you can't even describe. It's a different feeling. It's maybe a little bit of nervousness and uneasiness, but at the same time, a feeling of peace, like, yeah, this is what I need to do. This is the right step for me. The Bible says in Romans that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. It's not about saying a magic prayer. It's not about saying repeat after me. It's not about having a checklist of things that need to be done. It's about having faith that Jesus Christ was God's son who died for your sins, was raised from the dead, and you ask forgiveness of your sins and turn your life over to him today. It's as simple as you saying those few things. So I encourage you to go ahead and do that. If you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus and you want to, say it. Even if it's just a whisper under your breath. Jesus, I believe that you are God's son, that you died for my sins, that you were raised from the dead. And I ask for your forgiveness as I turn my life over to you. That's it. No magic prayer, no formula. If you really believe those things in your heart, then you're saved. So if you're not saved here today, do it. Take a few moments to do that today. Father God, we are so thankful for your love that you have poured out on us. God, we are thankful that while we were just like Zacchaeus, God, we were, we were evil, we were sinners, we didn't deserve anything from you, but Lord, you made eye contact with us, you saw us, and you gave us a way to have life and to have hope and to experience the, the transformative power 
of salvation. God, I pray that for all of us today as we reflect on what your word says, as we reflect on on scripture, God, that you would speak to us. As we take time to reflect before we take communion, God, that you would speak to our hearts, that we would be open before you, God, that you could could examine us, God, that that the sin that's in our life, that the things that are in our life that you want to change, God, that it would be clear to us as you speak to us. Lord, that you would give us the power and the equipping and the ability to change those things. And Lord, that you would speak to us in a great way. Lord, we love you and we thank you.